All right, well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. This evening, let's uh, pick it up in verse 8, and we'll get a running start on where we left off last time. But uh, the first seven verses are the introduction, and now Paul is kind of um, sharing his heart uh, about what he desires God will uh, do and allow him to do when he comes to Rome. But he said, first of all, verse 8, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now, Paul wrote that about three years before he actually sailed to Rome. And when he sailed to Rome, he didn't go first class. He went prisoner class. That's below coach, I think. And I bring that up because there are people out there who teach that as a child of the king, you should always go first class. Put it on your credit card. God will take care of it. But you're a child of the king. This is, I'm not making this up. You are a child of the king. Don't you want your kids to have the best? God wants his kids to have the best. He doesn't want you driving a dopey Kia like me. He wants you driving a Cadillac. You don't have a Kia. You're not being humble. You're being stupid. This is the teaching out there. And, um, you know, look, when you pray, God, lead me where you want me to go. You don't ever say, but can I go first class? Now, he'll get you there. I'm not saying how. I mean, it took, it took a couple, three years before Paul to actually make his way to Rome. God then gave him an all-expense-paid trip, care of the Roman government. But, you know, he was a, a, a political pawn in Caesarea for a couple of years, and he was beaten up in the temple there, and uh, all kinds of things happened before God brought him to this place. So, you know, God will get us where he wants us to be. How we get there... Well, he'll take care of that, but um, it's not always going to be a great experience. You'll get there, and God will certainly teach you a lot, a lot of things along the way, but, you know, Rome, Paul did get to Rome. Now, when he arrived in Rome, he was allowed to stay in his own rented house where he, was, uh, he remained for two years under house arrest uh, while awaiting to appear before Caesar and present his case. As we have said, he was a Roman citizen. He had that right. Uh, you had a right as a Roman citizen to appeal your case to Caesar. And that didn't mean you'd be able to get in immediately. He got to Rome and waited two years. But he did stand before Caesar. We'll talk about that more as we progress in the book. But uh, the book of Acts ends with these words. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him. Now, during this time, roughly AD 60 to 62, he entertained visitors and ministered. He taught the scriptures, he preached the gospel, and I think most importantly, he wrote four epistles. They have come to be known as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. 
And I can I I think we would all agree that our Christi, Christianity would be a lot less um, impacted if it were not for these four epistles. And so Paul's imprisonment, uh, possibly rough on him, although I think God really took care of him, uh, was a blessing for us. Uh, just like John being um, banished to the Isle of Patmos. But it was there God gave him the greatest revelation in the Bible. So out of our suffering often comes blessings for others. That was definitely the case with Jesus. Out of his sufferings came blessing for all of us, right? Um, but it's important to note that Paul didn't refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar. He said in Ephesians 3 verse 1, he called himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, in that little unassuming statement, there's a lot to take in. I mean, this gets into the whole mindset of Paul, who felt, look, as long as I'm doing what God has commanded me to do, Jesus sent him out. He's an apostle. He was one of those who had really was sent forth with a commission. His commission was to go into the world and preach the gospel. He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Whenever he hit a city, he would go to the synagogue first because he always had a heart for his Jewish brethren. But often he was shut down. Often they, they threw him out, and so he would then go to the Gentiles. But Paul had the mindset of, look, if I'm in the will of God, and I'm doing what God's called me to do, if I land in jail because I'm doing what Christ called me to do, that's fine. That's fine. Because all I'm doing is I'm fulfilling whatever ministry the Lord has given me to do. I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. A long time ago, I surrendered my life to him. He's my master. I'm his slave. And wherever he wants to send me. And Paul knew that there were going to be times when he would be imprisoned. But he always, he said eventually as he stood before the Sanhedrin years later, I have always conducted my life in good conscience up until this very day. Now the high priest didn't like that and that commanded the soldier standing by Paul to smash him in the mouth. Because Paul said, my conscience is clear. And they thought he was just completely guilty. But Paul could handle adversity knowing he was in the will of God. Guys, I can handle adversity if I know I'm in the will of God. If I'm living in sin and all kinds of negative things come my way, well, it's my fault. I can't be comfortable about anything. But if I'm doing what God's called me to do and people turn on me or they throw me in prison or whatever, I have a clear conscience of knowing I'm where God wants me. He must want me here because I'm being led by his spirit. And that's how Paul saw things. You know, that he was, wherever he was, a bond slave, a willing, voluntary slave of Jesus Christ. And wherever he found himself, even if it was in prison, it was just another opportunity to serve Jesus Christ. You have to look at things that way. Especially because we don't know what's coming. Some really difficult times might be coming for the church of Jesus Christ in America. And we have to be prepared now. We said of one of the kings in the Old Testament who took the throne in a time of peace. It says he used the time of peace to prepare for war. 
You don't prepare for war with the enemies banging on the gates. You prepare for war in time of peace. And this goes for our spiritual battles. We, right now we are in a time of peace. Sure, we have our struggles. I'm not saying that. But as a nation, we still are enjoying a lot of blessings. We don't know if that's going to end and end very soon. So we have to prepare ourselves spiritually in the time of peace for what might be coming spiritually a great time of war. I love the way Paul approached this, and I love what he said to the Philippians. Again, writing from prison in Rome, he said, Philippians, well, why don't you turn to it, Philippians 1. Let me correct myself. Paul wrote these prison epistles from his own rented house. When he came back to Rome a second time, he was in the dungeon. Okay? And uh, in fact, he might have uh, been in the dungeon, moved uh, back and forth at times. Why do I say that? Well, look at Philippians 1, verse 12. He said, I want you to know, my dear, I'm going to read out of the NLT. I, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. That was Paul's mindset. As long as it's going to spread the gospel, I don't care what happens to me. Verse 13, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. So my being in prison has furthered the gospel and emboldened the saints to be more bold in preaching the good news. Again, for Paul, his circumstances and surroundings didn't change anything. Whether he was out walking about as a free man, he was a bond slave of Christ. Whether he was in a Roman prison, he was a bond slave uh, for Jesus Christ. And it was just a new opportunity to share Christ with others. I love the way he ends this epistle in chapter 4, verses 21 and 2, where Paul said, Greet, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. So he had a tremendous impact on Caesar's staff. The people that took care of Caesar, cooked, cleaned, whatever. Obviously, he had a staff that took care of his needs and all. Uh, Paul would never have had access to these people if it wasn't for the fact he was a prisoner in Caesar's house. So that's interesting, right? But again, Romans 1, verse 10, Paul said, Making request, if by some means, now at last, I may, I may find a way to come to you. One of the burdens of Paul's prayer was that God would permit him to visit Rome. He had never been to Rome. He, but he longed to go there to minister to the churches there. Now, he would have visited them sooner. He tells us at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 15, but his missionary work kept him pretty busy. It was always something he wanted to do. Now, he was about to leave Corinth at this point. He had stayed in Corinth for three months, living at the house of Gaius. And while he was there, he was gathering an offering from the Gentile churches to bring back to Jerusalem to give to the Jewish Christians who were going through a really bad time with a famine that had hit the area. And Paul reasoned, look, Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. I know that spiritually, but 
practically, we still see a great division where Jews and Gentiles are not really coming together. You have the Jewish churches, you have the Gentile churches, it's like in the Deep South years ago. You had the white churches, you had the black churches. But we all should be the family of God together. So Paul figured, look, the Gentile Christians owe the Jewish believers a great debt. Because, wow, I mean, God used the Jewish people to preserve the scriptures. It was through the Jewish folks that Messiah came and so on. So Paul figured, look, if I can gather an offering to bring back to Jerusalem, to let the Jewish Christians know, look, your Gentile brothers and sisters would, wanted you to have this because they knew you were suffering. Wow, would that really bind together in one body Jew and Gentile Christians? And so he was about to leave Corinth to do this very thing, to take this offering back to Jerusalem. Now, here was his plans. After he visited Jerusalem, he wanted to go to Rome. That's what he's telling them. And then from Rome, he wanted to go to Spain to take the gospel to a, a no, new area that uh, had not really uh, had the gospel preached to them. Here's the thing. Paul made plans, but often the Holy Spirit changed those plans. And Paul was okay with that. Jesus himself taught us to pray whatever's in our hearts, but end, to end our prayers, but not my will, but your will be done, right? I bring this up because Paul was flexible. I mean, it's not wrong to have a plan. Some people think to have a plan is carnal. It, it's perfectly good and fine to have a plan, as long as your plan is open to the Holy Spirit redirecting you. Now, here's the problem. Paul would share his heart with people in his letters, telling them, well, I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to come see you guys. But then the Holy Spirit would redirect him somewhere. And the, some of the critical-hearted folks in these places where Paul said he was going to come began to criticize Paul. He doesn't keep his word. How can we trust him? He's not a man of his word. You're always going to have critical-hearted people. Eventually, Paul said, you know, I stand before the Lord. He knows my heart. I'm not lying. I intended to come to you, but I'm not running this thing. The Holy Spirit's in charge of my life, right? But it's good to have a plan, and Paul did have plans. Um, verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Unlike many in the ministry today, Paul didn't want anything from them. He wanted to give something to them. Boy, has that changed. I am fortunate that I had a pastor, and my wife had a pastor's wife, Pastor Chuck and his wife Kay. They reinforced this principle every time they had a conference. They were always giving stuff away. They gave us bags of books and, and, and different uh, uh, worship at that time, cassettes, and uh, all kinds of different things. The women were, were given all kinds of things that because they wanted to bless people in ministry. And so I, I learned, and Cindy has learned, and when we ever have a gathering, we try to give people things that we believe will help their walk, uh, do something positive in their life for the Lord. But there's a lot of people, well, we know, a lot of folks in ministry that don't belong in ministry and 
a lot of them probably aren't even saved, that act like Christians. They're, they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're all, you know who they are because, as Peter said, they're always looking to make merchandise of you. In other words, they're always looking for some technique or gimmick to separate you from your money. Always in the name of God, always in the name of the greater good, you know. But we, we see it today. But uh, Paul wasn't that way. He would go on to say that he considered himself a spiritual parent to the people he ministered to. And he said the parents should be responsible to provide for the children, not the children for the parents. Have you ever known people? I have. Parents, either a husband or a, fa a father or a mother, who are so irresponsible that now their adult kids have to take care of them. I'm not talking about if the father or mother is disabled. That's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, though, how they waste their money. They don't really uh, keep a good um, eye on things. They're, very, they're, just, they're not good in uh, managing their money, and they're always broke. And so they're always crying out to their kids to help them. I think that we as grown adult children should help our moms and dads if we can. But you have to draw a line somewhere if it's just a, a total thing where it's like they're constantly um, can't buy their necessities because they blew it on this and that. Um, maybe we're not helping them to facilitate that behavior. I don't know. You pray about it. But Paul applied that spiritually that the people he ministered to, he saw them as his children in a sense, where he wanted to take care of them. He wanted to give to them. He didn't want to, to you know, take from them where they were supporting Paul. Um, and we'll talk about that more in a second. But you remember how Jesus set the example. He said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And Paul would go on to say, he told the Corinthians, I don't want your possessions, I want you. That's the heart of a good shepherd. Well, listen. If you do give to God, you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. Just make sure your motives are pure for why you want to give to God. There's a lot of people on radio and TV that tell uh, tell people that uh, if you give to God, He will give you a hundredfold in return. So give it to us, because it's your seed faith offering. We'll take it. It's I know you appreciate that. We'll take it, and then God will bless you a hundredfold. Well, let me tell you something. That's not giving. That's investing. It's a whole different mindset. But if you give to God with a right heart, Lord, I love you. You've been so good to me. How can I not give to others? How can I not support this or this ministry that helps people when uh, when there's a disaster somewhere in the world and I know this is a good they rush over there and they bring food and water and clothing and so on and so how can I not help a ministry like that if your heart is right remember what Jesus said in Luke 6 38 give and you will receive your gift will return to you in full pressed down shaken together to make room for more running over and poured into your lap, the amount you give will determine the amount you get back. 
Now, you can, of course, abuse that and apply it very carnally. But Jesus was always talking about giving with the right heart. So, verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to, to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the, by the mutual faith both of you and me. The great apostle Paul, one of the most, if not the most, brilliant theologian that has ever lived, was humble enough to receive from this young church, these young Christians, and I believe that's one of the reasons God used him so powerfully. You, you humble yourself, he'll what? Lift you up. Lift you up. I heard a story years ago about General Washington. George Washington, you know, was a general for a year before he became president. And um, one biographer said, one of the reasons George Washington was so successful and so well-loved is because he would gather around him as field generals or lieutenants, whatever, he, those out in the field. And he would want their input, every one of them, the oldest, the youngest, it didn't matter. He, everyone was important. He wanted to hear everybody's uh, point of view and what they felt needed to be done. And the Bible says there is wisdom in a what? Multitude of counselors. Humility is used by God to do, for God to use us in great ways. And uh, I, I think that was Paul. I mean, good heavens, the uh, great apostle Paul telling a young church uh, with young Christians, I can't wait to see you so that we can mutually share and enjoy each other's fellowship. And I can learn from you, and you can learn from me, and we can be a family at, uh, at last, because I've never actually met you in person. He says, I long to see you. All through this, look for Paul's heart coming through. I long to see you. I can't wait to see you. He didn't say, eh, when I get there, I get there. And just be happy I get there at all. I know I have to see you, but I'm going to take my time when it's convenient for me. We have politicians like this. I'm not going to say any more about it. This is Paul's pastor's heart coming through. I long to see you. I just can't wait to embrace you. That we can sit down and fellowship with each other, right? Some of the saints in Rome were very dear to Paul. Now, he had never been there, but he had worked with different people that had moved there. And so he mentions in chapter 16, first of all, Priscilla and Aquila who risked their lives for him. He loved these two, a husband and wife team. He mentions in Romans 16, verse 12, the beloved Persis and others who had labored and suffered with Paul that he was longing to see again, along with all the new folks, right? Uh, he loved all the believers there, old friends, people yet had not yet met. He longed to be able to share with them, as he said, some spiritual gift. The Greek word translated gift is charisma, which means a gift of grace, a spiritual enablement, the source of which is the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember what Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. He said, Timothy, 
God doesn't give a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So don't neglect the gift that was given to you by the Holy Spirit when the elders laid hands on you and prayed. Now, what gift Timothy received, we don't know. But it was a divine enablement. That's what we're talking about. Uh, a, a, a spiritual gift that God gave to Timothy to use in his ministry, but he ministered in a rough area. He was a young guy, and he was uh, intimidated. You know, And um, so uh, Paul says, look, uh, that timidity is not from the Holy Spirit. If he gives you a gift, he'll give you the courage to use it if you are looking for it and praying about it, right? And boy, does that apply in my life, as you all know. Well, maybe some of you don't know, but I, I grew up with an incredible fear of public speaking. I mean, so much so I couldn't even stand up in front of a, my classes as a young guy to read a book report. I, my heart would start pounding. I, my mouth would get dry as cotton. I'd have a full-blown panic attack. And then God says, oh, I want you to be in ministry. I'm like, I felt like Moses. Not that I am Moses, but can you send this guy? Thanks, Lord, but no thanks. Can you send this other guy? Yeah, no, I want to use you. Um, what does that do but drive you to your knees and say, well, God, whom you call, you equip. That's all I can say. I throw myself at your mercy. You know, God does never call. God never calls, but what He doesn't also equip. It's never about us. It wasn't that God saw things in me that He th said, "Oh, I got to use this guy." No, he's just really no. I mean, I like to know, think that God looked at my heart and said, saw that my heart was willing. I wanted to be used. How I was going to be used, I didn't know. But boy. Talk about getting terrified. But God gifted me with certain gifts, and he wanted me to use those gifts. This same with you. Um, now, Paul was looking forward to a time of mutual blessing uh, in the love of Christ with these folks. Again, verse 11, he said, For I long to see you, verse 13. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. He was the apostle primarily to the Gentiles. And uh, so God used him in a very powerful way, and many got saved, many Gentiles, and received many gifts from the Holy Spirit to use in ministry. So God had used Paul to bless many Gentiles, and he wanted to come to Rome to bless the Gentiles there. He said, what about the Jews? They were gone. Remember, uh, Claudius banished them in 49 AD. Why? We talked about this last week. Because of all the riots that were happening in the synagogues. Because of one named Crestus. Crestus? Historians can't pinpoint who, who Crestus is. Well, the, the Greek historian writing this, what is it, like 70 years after the fact? He had the name messed up, probably Christos. Jews were getting saved, bringing the message of Jesus Christ to their synagogues, and the synagogues were blowing up, and they were rioting in the streets. And so finally, Claudius said, enough is enough, all you Jews get out. So he cleansed the city of Jews. Of course, those saved Jews went out spreading the gospel everywhere. 
So God uses all kinds of things to get the word out. But um, Paul said, look, I, I've been wanting to come to you for a long time, but I uh, have been hindered. Now, why was Paul hindered? Well, we don't know for sure. He, never, he doesn't say. I can see that it could have been every time he wanted to go to Rome, an emergency rose somewhere else with the churches. So maybe there was he had a run over to Galatia or run over somewhere else to minister because the devil was attacking and churches were, uh, you know, they were having problems. It could be that the Holy Spirit, as we just said earlier, redirected Paul. He made a plan, but the Holy Spirit said, well, no, not right now, and redirected him somewhere else. It could have been the devil. Can the devil hinder our plans? Oh, sure. Does God let him? I think God allows it because God is using that to, again, redirect us. If it's God's ultimate will that we make it somewhere in ministry, we're going to get there. We'll, we'll get there. But, um, you know, so we don't know really why Paul um, was, was actually uh, kept from, from going to, to Rome. Uh, we do know chapter 15, he did say he was very busy with ministry. So maybe that was the reason he kept having to minister to the churches who were having problems. But he desired to go there, he said, to have some fruit among the Gentiles in Rome. The scripture, uh, the word of God catalogs three kinds of spiritual fruit. I'm not going to spend any time in that. I'll just sort it out so you have a working knowledge, okay? When Paul says, I, I want to come there that I might have some fruit among you. What could he mean? Well, first of all, the, the fruit that we know the best, that we're most familiar with, is Galatians 5, 22 and 3, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are really the attitudes or really the attributes of God whose nature is now in us. God, God is love. He is joy. He is peace. He's all the things that the fruit of the Spirit talks about. The problem is those are attributes of God, God's nature. Uh, we can fake joy. We can fake peace. People do it all the time. Uh, some Christians too, but mostly unbelievers. But Peter said, 2 Peter 1.4, when you accepted Christ, God's spirit moved inside. And we became partakers of his divine nature. So now I have access to the, the love, the joy, the peace, all the attributes of God. And it's called the fruit of the spirit, right? So th those are some spiritual fruits. Uh, other places talk about righteous actions as being fruit. Paul himself is going to mention in ch chapter 6, Verse 22, he talks about holiness being a spiritual fruit of their walk with God. Remember, he talked to the Philippians in chapter 4, uh, verses 16 and 17. He said, I want to thank you for the, the gift you gave me, the offering. Not that I asked you for anything, not that I really wanted anything, but I accept it because I want spiritual fruit to abound to your account. So rewards in heaven. And then in Romans 16, verse 5, Paul talks about the fruit of new converts. And I think this was the thing uh, he was thinking of when he made this statement here in verse 13, uh, that he is speaking of the fruit of the gospel, converts, converts. As the next two verses, verses 14 and 15, uh, seem to uh, uh, reveal. 
uh, verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, obviously, when you think of a debtor, you think of somebody who owes some, somebody something. And certainly that is in view here. But a lot of people point out that in this context, when Paul says, I am a debtor, he probably means one obligated or bound by duty. One obligated or bound by duty. And this goes back to the very first thing he said about himself to open this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. In other words, his duty was to his master, Jesus Christ, who had entrusted to Paul, and not only Paul, all believers, but now we're thinking of Paul. Jesus Christ had entrusted to the Apostle Paul something that was absolutely priceless. It was the antidote that would cure the effects of the fall and heal people of a fatal disease called sin. Therefore, Paul owed the human race a debt to faithfully get this cure, the gospel, to as many people as possible before they died in their sins and spent eternity in hell. Look, we'll say that um, you know some kind of a scientist, brilliant person, and they have just developed a cure for cancer. It's been tested, kept quiet, it's been tested, and it's uh, it's 100% um, of the time it, it works. And for whatever reason, they give you the cure and tell you to go and spread it with as many people as you can. What kind of person would you be if you locked the formula in a safe somewhere and just sat on it? That would be the worst thing you could think of. Jesus Christ is committed to our keeping, uh, to, to share the gospel, which spiritually is the antidote, the cure for the disease of sin. Sin is incurable by man's human standards. It's 100% fatal. It results in eternal separation from God all the time. And here Jesus Christ, through his blood, has given us the antidote. I remember watching, and I like Discovery Channel and channels that deal with nature. I like that, you know. And I remember, true story, and one of these programs, I remember seeing how that they had used sheep's blood, they separated it, put it in a, uh, what do you call it, where they spin it and separate the, uh, the elements. They were using sheep sheep's blood as an antidote, antidote for uh, snake venom. I mean, the irony just pretty much slapped me right off my chair. Using the blood of a sheep, a lamb, as an antidote for the serpent's bite. Oh, my goodness. That's the gospel. And we have the antidote. And Paul felt a heavy responsibility not to keep it. And he felt he needed to get out there and share the good news that you don't have to die in your sins. Jesus Christ made a way for you to live, not just 
physically, but eternally. Okay. So Paul, when he talks here, he, he's talking about how he owes the human race a debt to faithfully get this cure out. And uh, he says, well, to who? Well, only the people I like. Right? I mean, you know, you got some people that would do that. Paul said, look, I'm a debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. Now, of course, the Greeks were Greek. The barbarians were everyone else who was not Greek. Where did this term barbarian come from? Well, the Greeks believed their culture, their language was so lofty. It was really the language of the gods. And, and the Greek language is pretty spectacular. So much so that they looked down at anyone else who wasn't Greek and didn't speak the Greek language. And they would make fun. They would mock people who spoke other languages. And they would make fun out of their, the sound of their words. They, they would say, oh, they're just bar, 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 bar. That's how they talk. That's how they sound. Barbarians. That was the idea. And Paul said, look, I have been commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. Um, don't we see somewhere in the Bible where it says God is no respecter of persons? He loves all people and wants to see all people saved. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to wise and unwise. One author said, and I quote, the Greeks, were con the Greeks considered every non-Greek a barbarian. Steeped in centuries of philosophy, the Greeks saw themselves as wise and everyone else as foolish. But Paul felt an obligation to all men just as we need to feel a burden for the whole world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I want you to notice verses 14, 15, the beginning of verse 16. Let me read it to you. Where Paul said, I'm a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Uh, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you, who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed. Guys, in these three verses, Paul gives us the mindset that we all must have if we're going to be effective missionaries slash evangelists for our master, Jesus Christ. This has got to be our mindset. If you don't have it, if anyone is missing of these three, you're not going to be as effective as you could be. I am a debtor. In other words, I owe people. I owe people to give them what I know. I'm a debtor. I am ready right now, not someday. I mean, a lot of Christians are waiting for someday. And I realize you may have small children or taking care of an invalid mother or father. So you can't literally get out. You can't be a missionary at this point. But you can certainly pray. Pray for souls. So I'm a debtor. I am ready. And I am not ashamed. Those things have to be in place in our lives. They are essential to any bond slave of Jesus Christ if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission.
And so to discharge the debt he owed the human race, as once sent by his master, Jesus Christ, Paul said, I'm ready. I'm ready to preach the gospel to those in Rome. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. The folks in Rome he's writing to, they're already saved. Well, he's not talking about them. They already accepted the gospel. He was talking about going to Rome, yes, to encourage the saints to build them up. He talked about that earlier. But also he had a heart to go to Rome and preach the gospel to the unsaved. Now, as we've said before, Rome built its empire where all roads led to Rome. They were going to be the, the economic center of the known world, and they were. But if all roads led to Rome, it also meant all roads led from Rome. And Paul was a wise person. And he thought, look, how better can I get the gospel out to as much of the world as, and as quickly as I can by, than by going to Rome, preaching the gospel, because whoever gets saved, that's a metropolitan city. There's always people from all over the known world there, mer merchandising and doing different if I can get folks saved, they're going to take the gospel back to their own, you know, countries or cities. Paul said, this is a great, a great opportunity. So, yeah, I want to help the saints be built up, but I also want to preach the gospel to the unsaved Gentiles. And then, guys, in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us the theme of the whole book of Romans. He gives us the theme of the whole book of Romans. And please don't just gloss over this. It is so important. Let me read these verses. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We'll dig into this a little more next time. But let me just start off by saying this. The gospel that Paul preached, as we know, reveals a righteousness that is by faith. In the Old Testament, righteousness was by works. Well, not really. People were always justified by faith. Remember God told, you know, it was said of Abraham after God promised that in him that is in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God took him outside and showed him all the stars of the sky and said, Lord, uh, uh, Abraham or Abram, uh, so shall your descendants be more innumerable. They can't even be counted. You're going to have so many descendants. Well, of course, the Lord was talking about spiritual descendants. That would be men and women of faith, even as Abraham was the father of faith. But it says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So even under the old economy, they weren't saved by their works. But under the Mosaic Covenant, they did, were allowed to use animal sacrifices to approach God, to worship God, and so on. So in that regard, the Old Testament righteousness was by works, but the Jewish people soon discovered they could not obey God's law and meet his righteous demands, which was sinless perfection. 
They couldn't do it. And they were frustrated. Many had given up even trying. Think about this. I mean, you know, most people were not wealthy. So you committed a sin. You took, you know, the last lamb you had because you wanted to atone for it. You took it to the tabernacle, later to the temple, and you offered it to God. And then on the way home, some guy cut you off. And you got in the flesh, and you did some things or said some things, and the, oh man, now I got to go back again, right? Well, how long do you think it would take before you got so discouraged you just gave up? Now God knew that it was all designed by God to bring them to the end of themselves. Turn to Jeremiah thirty-one. You all know it, Jeremiah thirty-one, starting with verse thirty-one. The Lord said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, of course, what's in view here is the new covenant. And the writer of the Hebrews makes a big deal out of focusing on this and saying, look, external laws written, uh, I mean, laws written on external tablets of stone can't change the heart. And if a person truly fears the consequences, it might keep people in line. But as we're learning in our society, if people don't care about consequences, no law written on tablets of stone or anywhere else is going to affect them and force them to be righteous. Now, God knew that. So under the new covenant, which the writer says is a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant, God said through faith, when they receive my son, my spirit will move in and write my laws on their hearts. And they will desire from the heart to obey me. No longer external laws written on tablets of stone, but now God's laws written in the fleshly tablets of our hearts, he would say. And you guys know that. You've all We've all experienced it. Before I got saved, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and I was not a rebel towards the church. I believed what they were teaching me was true. And most of it was, as far as Ten Commandments and who Jesus was and what he did. That was all true. But I wasn't born again. I wasn't filled with the Spirit in those early days. So I had the commandments, and I would obey here and there because I really feared not obeying, but I didn't enjoy obeying. I did it at times. A lot of times I didn't do it. But when I opened my heart to Christ, everything changed. And you know that. Now I desire to obey God's word. Not because I'm afraid of consequences, although the biggest consequence I'm really afraid of is grieving the heart of my father, who's so good to me. It's not that I, I, you know, I have to force myself not to party or not to drink, or not to uh, do all kinds of other things. Because I really want to do that. No, God's moved in. The Spirit of God has given me a new heart, a new nature. 
I don't want to do things that a lot of unbelievers are. I'm not going to be a Christian. You can't have any fun. What do you mean fun? Well, you can't drink, so I can't get cirrhosis. You can't sleep around, so I can't get AIDS or venere some venereal disease. That's a ball. Are you enjoying yourself? Yeah, you know, and by the way, it's not that I'm forcing myself not to do those things that I really want to. I have no heart to do that anymore. The Holy Spirit is, is living in my heart and has given me a whole different, different desires, which my greatest desire now is to draw close to Jesus and be in love with him and serve him. And then Paul quotes something that is very important. At the end of verse 17, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Right here, Romans 1.17, then in Galatians 3.11, and then number 3, Hebrews 10.38. These three books taken together form a three-volume commentary on this foundational statement of the Christian life, the just shall live by faith. That statement is so important. God took it and spent three entire books developing it. Romans deals with the just. How are we made just before God? That's the book of Romans. Galatians explains, shall live. How shall we who are justified live? Well, it's not by law. Hebrews, by faith. The book that contains the great hall of faith, chapter 11. That statement is so important. God gave us three of the most incredible books in the New Testament to teach it to us, to that we would understand. The just shall live by faith. And guys, Paul lays out the gospel in the first few verses. And then he distills it down to its main part in verses 16 and 17. And I'm looking at the clock, and I think rather than just start to get into this, we'll save it for next time. But this man, verses 16 and 17, when I went to Bible college, I didn't go... A couple of years. And I wanted to just pick up some, some classes of practical things. And one of the practical classes I wanted to attend was a class on homiletics. Homiletics is the, is the way to, uh, to prepare Bible studies and messages because I knew nothing. <laughs> you say, look, all right, Phil, you get over there, you're going to preach now. What? Preach? I don't know how to preach. I'll be with you. But I figured it was not wrong to get a little help. So I, I, I took a class in homiletics. And one of the things that they taught me was when you're studying a passage and you want to develop it into a teaching, look for the main idea, what they call the proposition statement. It really is the theme, the theme. Um, and, and Romans 1, 16 and 17 forms the proposition statement for the rest of the book. And, and the proposition statement is like uh, the compass uh, that, that, that keeps you on the right course. Uh, this is where we're going. 
This is the coordinates. We're locking it in. And now we're going to develop this theme statement. Everything is going to connect with it. The just shall live by faith is end of verse 17. But verses 16 and 17 form this proposition statement, basically. The, the heart of what Paul wants to communicate in the rest of the book. So um, we'll come back to this. There's so much here. And uh, I don't want to just start off and then stop right away. So come on back next Wednesday. We will, God willing, begin to look at verses 16 and 17. And then it transitions really, well, transitions really well. Of course it does. God wrote it. Okay. Sorry, Lord. Of course it transitions well. From verse 17 into the first main section of the book. If Paul's going to preach the gospel. That's his desire. That people would get saved. What did Jesus say? If a person's sick, but doesn't know they're sick, they will never seek out a doctor. I haven't come to tend to the well, but to the sick. Now, that doesn't mean there were some people who were spiritually well, but there were a lot of people in Jesus' day who thought they were spiritually healthy and wonderful. The Pharisees, scribes, and so on. If Paul's going to preach the good news, he's first of all got to emphasize the bad news. And that's what starts in verse 18 of chapter 1. So we need to look at verses 16 and 17 so that we really understand what he's saying in these verses before we launch into the first major section of the book of Romans. And we'll see it build from there. So come on back. Father, we thank you. Well, first of all, we thank you for your great love where with you loved us. We thank you for sending your son who was a willing sacrifice. No one takes my life from me. You said, Lord Jesus, I give myself my life freely for the sheep. Thank you. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you've come from heaven to live in our hearts and guide our lives. And we just praise you, Lord, for the great work you're doing. You, you have taken us from darkness and the devil's bondage and translated us into the kingdom of light and love. We thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word in this incredible book that we might grow in our walk in a deeper way and know you in a deeper way. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.